Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening, depending on where in the world you are. What a treat it is. Janice and I were just talking that we have a maybe an unrivaled record <laughs> of conversations. Ever since she wrote The Appeal, we have been together for every book, which um, includes The Appeal, The Twyford Code, now The Al Alperton Angels, and her Christmas book, which came, well, we were trying to decide. Was it in November, do you think? It was released in October, so I'm, I guess we must have spoken in around November time, at, at the latest early December. So since we are never able, so far anyway, we have not been able to lure Janice to the poison pen, we do actually import her books from London in an autograph form, and then we sell the U.S. edition on autographs, as we can't figure that out. But Janice is telling me that the pub days may start coinciding not the six months apart in the fall. So maybe, maybe we'll be able to lure you to come and see us at some point. Well, fingers crossed. I would love to. I would absolutely love to. Especially well, having well, spoken to you for so often. I for so but we've never actually met, right? And, <laughs> and actually, if you live in the UK, winter in Scottsdale is not a bad thing. So perhaps oh. we could work that out, you know, kind of a <laughs> recreational book tour. <laughs> absolutely. I, I'm game. I love it. Right. So Janice is um, not pioneered because in point of fact, the almost the first novel in English was written in a epistolary form. It was um, Pamela. I think it's Pamela by Samuel Richardson. And um, and Jane Austen wrote a, an epistolary novel. Um, trying to remember what is something Susan? What's it called? Um, Lady, Lady Susan Letters to Susan? I can't remember, but whatever. Anyway, in her early days, Jane Austen also wrote an epistolary novel. And one of the things that Richardson, because he was pioneering the novel in its structure, um, solved a couple of problems. One, who is the narrative voice? It's whoever's writing the letter. And two, how does the plot progress? Well, as the letters and the messages keep moving, so does the plot. So Janice, a genius, has totally updated this original form and she's using my God, in this book, you've used practically everything. What's oh, pretty it? much. Yeah every, yeah, every form of communication is in this book. <laughs> you do. And before we go too far, I want to show you my personal favorite, which is that this is a screenplay, I think it is. Um, yeah. Notice the use of sticky notes, which add an extra, <laughs> an extra dimension here. There's one up on the top. So as you're reading the script, you also get to read the little sticky notes aside. Now, that's genius, Janice. Why, why, why did you decide to bring in sticky notes? Oh, thank you. I don't know whether it's genius so much. I mean, it's how I sometimes annotate scripts because I, I come from script writing. I'd, I'd use sticky notes to, to put notes on, on scripts if I printed them out. Um, so probably from that. Uh, but yeah, it's... Um, Yes, this, this book was quite a wild ride to, to write with all the different formats in it, because that script is um, from an, a, a supposedly un, unmade film that was based on the true crime that my main character is researching. And she's convinced there are clues in it, so we have to work out whether she's right or not. Well, um, the script comes towards the end, and I picked those pages because it's dense <laughs> with sticky notes. But we should probably... <laughs> go all the way back to the beginning. And I should mention that Janice has a distinguished career as a journalist. And I think that she's brought those skills and that interest to this particular book, although all of her books are basically investigative in, you know, aren't they? They're all about somebody working towards um, solving something. They are. I mean, we come to think of it, there's a 
an investigator or a, or a detective with a small d in each of the books, even though, the, from the, to the best of my memory, none of them are actual police. There's somebody with a vested interest looking into into what happened. So, yeah, no, for sure. It's the finest Agatha Christie, whatever tradition. I just love that. I have to tell you, I, I love this, Janice, and it's a title I might hand off to you. I'm hosting a book called The Busybody on January 31st. It's our first mystery club book for um, January. And it's written by a guy who runs the All About Agatha podcast. And so what he's done is he's taken a ghostwriter to a retired senator in Maine based on Margaret Chase Smith. Um, and, you know, bad things, bad things happen. Um, but in the process of discussing um, Agatha and ghostwriting and so forth, he points out that Poirot had a sidekick. Sherlock Holmes has a sidekick. But he says, this is my, I just love this line. Miss Marple, he said, works alone. <laughs> I think <laughs> Marple works alone is just, I mean, doesn't that just call to you to write a book? or a Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a, an amazing observation. I've never heard that made before. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, he has a lot of, of insights. You know, um, Bloomsbury, was it last year or two years ago, did a unbelievably expensive, so it was really for the academic market, um, book edited by one of my Poison Pen Press authors, Marianna Evans, and Val McDermott wrote the introduction and various people wrote chapters. And mine was a chapter about experiencing Agatha. So I had Reese Bowen write about it. But the one I thought was the most interesting of the people who joined me was Ragnar Janusson, the Icelandic author, who knew very yeah. well and may have met. And Ragnar has actually translated the works of Agatha Christie into Icelandic. And, you know, loves loves her story structure and so forth. So it's incredible the influence that she has had and still has. Yeah, around the world. It, it, is, it is amazing. It's certainly something to aspire to. Right. So that's why I'm saying that Miss Marble works alone actually could work perfectly well in some sort of contemporary um, thing. Because, you know, almost everybody who reads crime fiction is familiar with Christie and her characters. Were you an Agatha Christie reader back in the day? Do you know, I have to confess, I wasn't a, a Christie reader. Uh, I, I had no books at home at all. So my um, literary education was all on screen. So I was an, a Christie watcher. I would watch the Poirot series here and any film that came on, I was a, a big fan of that, that was based on Christie. So I, I've come to the books themselves rather late in life. And I've read more Christie since being a published author myself than before. I'm um, sure I mean, she's an inspiration. I was really lucky. I joined the Crime Writers Association the year after we opened the bookstore, so 1990, and it was the centenary of Agatha Christie. And um, we met in Torquay, where, you know, she grew up. And they had a I love this. They brought a special branch of the Orient Express. They ran it from London to Torquay. And in one car, they had David Suchet. And in the other hand, they had um, the marvelous woman that played Miss, Mar Miss Marple so well. I can't think of her name. It will come to me. But anyway, you know, they never met in the Christie books. So they came down in entirely separate cars. And when they got to the little tiny station in Torquay, you know, it's concrete, a bridge, whatever. We all went down there. And they got off the train. David Suchet got off and he had a big bouquet and Miss um, Marple got off and he walked over, bowed over her hand, presented her the flowers and said, 
at last we meet. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> but then that night, oh joy, I got to dance with David Suchet at wow. the Wow. I know. You know what? He's he's quite short, and so am I. So he said to me later, it was very comfortable dancing with me because we could sort of look eye to eye, you know. Wow, eh? All these yeah. years we've been speaking, and I didn't know that about you. Well, why would you? I mean, it's just <laughs> because of, but anyway, I thought that the Bloomsbury book, which probably, you know, because it's like, I don't remember a couple hundred dollars or something, very few people would actually have bought. It's really too bad because they're just some incredible essays and memories and all of a lot of very distinguished writers, but it emphasized and reminded me her influence over crime fiction, you know, is so pervasive and never ending. Mm-hmm. It came up last night, Jack Carr and Stephen Hunter, I mean, people you would never think were Agatha Christie fans, talked out about how, you know, they'd learned plots and, you know, wish they could plot as well as Agatha Christie. You know, I was <laughs> like, really? Anyway, let's talk about the Alberton Angels. So give us the gist of the story, your pitch. Yeah, oh, uh, with pleasure. I, I, I have the book here, so I'm going to hold it up. I know that's because uh, I'm, I'm so pleased I found it. Um, I've got I'm tidying up my study, but I so I've kept that um, to show tonight. I'm oh, yeah. tidying up. I am going to um, tidy up behind me as well. Anyway, uh, so the mysterious case of the Alperton Angels is about two true crime authors who are locked in competition to find a key interviewee. Now, this interviewee was a baby 18 years ago when they were almost sacrificed by a cult. And this cult, the Alperton Angels, believed themselves to be angels sent to Earth to kill the newborn Antichrist. And they convinced this baby's teenage mother and father that um, this baby should be destroyed. But luckily, uh, that never happened. Um, The teenage parents and the baby um, escaped and went back into the social care system from whence they'd come. Uh, And uh, for that reason... Uh, nobody knew who they were because they were they were protected by um, anonymity uh, and that now 18 years later that baby has just become an adult and they can tell their story for the first time so that's quite an important um, time and, it, and it's why Amanda and Oliver are so keen to find them because both of them want that scoop they're both former journalists who are now true crime authors and they want to interview that baby They have a history, Amanda and Oliver have a history between them, uh, but they're forced to work together uh, against both of their um, better judgment. And they they start to uncover some alarming inconsistencies in the case and what everyone thinks they know about it. And they come to realise that all is not as it seems or as it seemed 18 years ago. But I should say that um, at the beginning, uh, we're presented with a dilemma. Now, this book is in the format of Amanda's research material so we're not reading the book she wrote we're reading her her background material her interview transcriptions her notes her little scripts that she writes for herself when she's trying to convince someone to to give her information her emails her whatsapps between her and Oliver and her and all of her contacts so we have we have a whole raft of information including a couple of novels and the script that she thinks um the writers of had had clues because they were working at the time and they might have landed upon something. So she's trying to unpick that as well. Now, at the beginning of the book, um, we are asked to read all of this. We say this has all been found 
in a, a safe deposit box and we have to read it and make a decision. We have two choices. We can either take everything to the police or we can put it all back in that safe deposit box, lock it away and throw away the key. So there's a particular decision to make at the end of this book. And uh, that's probably all I can say at the moment without giving any spoilers away. Uh, it was a wild ride to write and um, it's a wild ride to read as well. And I've, I've had great feedback on this book in the UK and in, in America from the people who've read it. So I really hope um, you enjoy it and you're inspired to, to read it and to think maybe a bit about the true crime industry, which has inspired it. Well, I think that certainly it's a challenging book for the reader. I mean, it's fun to have to, you know, to read through it, piece together the information, try to figure out where the storylines are going. Um, I think I read a review that said something to that effect, you know, that you were, let me see if I can find it, because you had some wonderful reviews. I hate it when my phone keeps going there. Um, right. Yeah, the New York Times and the Washington Post all this week which I'm still walking on air about, uh, that their reviews were wonderful. So they were I, wonderful, yeah. but you yeah. had all kinds of great blurbs and other reviews. Oh, and, and all other authors as well and, and the bloggers. I've been so lucky with this book that it's really um, captured people's imaginations and they've really taken it on board, which uh, is, is so gratifying to know that because it, it's a book that means a lot to me. And when other, when other people take it up, it's, uh, it's just brilliant. Well, I love it. Here's the, here was the, in a starred review, Publishers Weekly said, the twist never let up as Hallett barrels towards the finish, frequently undermining readers' expectations along the way, but staying firmly in the realm of fair play. And I think that's important, you know, that you do keep undermining expectations as we read along. But you did that really well in the appeal. I thought the appeal was a really dazzling sleight of hand. And, you know, you, you sort of, can guess when it's called the appeal? I mean, if you're an experienced crime writer, reader rather, you can kind of guess that there may be something going on that is not as clear on the surface. Um, and I, you know, it's it's really addictive to those of us who like to be challenged while we read to get a real challenge like this. Um, so yeah, I thought the Alberton Angel was wonderful. I think cults are terrifying. And, you know, there were sort of echoes of Jim Jones and all of that awful stuff. But as I was discussing last night with Stephen Hunter and Jack Carr, and, and I have with various other authors, it used to be, Janice, that, you know, that the private eye or the policeman was the lead investigator. Back to Miss Marple and Poirot on the amateur side. Um, and then, you know, lots of detectives. And, and they were more or less linear. You know, it would start and... And it would work towards the conclusion because the private eye, the gumshoe, really doesn't exist anymore. What's happened is that at least in American crime fiction, the true crime podcaster has become a lead. Um, and, you know, I find that fascinating. It's almost replaced the private eye novel. Have you noticed that, too? Oh, absolutely. In fiction, but also in real life. Yeah. Some podcasters, I mean, they're so good. They've investigated crimes and got to the bottom of them where the police are not resourced enough to be able to do it um although there's some sort of danger in there as well that people who are amateurs can get involved in things that they um shouldn't really get involved with it has happened that uh podcasters have uncovered and solved crimes where you know 
the police haven't been able to. So yeah, but the podcast is is a really powerful force in in true crime industry. And it has become an industry. You know, I mean, it reminds me, you know, I'm a child of radio because, you know, I was born so long ago. And I remember, you know, on Sundays, you would be, you know, riveted to a succession of like radio plays and so forth. And some of them, you know, were crime and some of them were, you know, other funny stuff like Fibber McGee and Molly or whatever. And then, you know, television came along and kind of preempted that. But I think, I think that true, you know, podcasts, and to some degree, audiobooks have taken us back to listening like radio did. Yeah, that, that's true, actually, because we're so busy and we're watching, looking at our phone all the time. We need our ears to, to do things. We don't read as much anymore, perhaps, and we listen. And I certainly notice a lot of readers um, consume my books uh, on the audiobook. Uh, which Nobody is did, incredible but, you know, to me. I think you missed something though, because like I just pointed out with the, you know, with the sticky notes, there's there's really no way to translate this page with the sticky notes in with the same effect anyway. I mean, you could read the sticky notes aloud, but I think I think to some degree your books really need the visual. I I think so. I well, as I write them, you know, I confess I don't think about the audio book. I think just about the book that people are holding in their hands or at best possibly uh, an e-book. Um, but yeah, it, it is quite visual. And I suppose because a lot of our media now is a visual thing, we get it on our phone and it's the phone is a, a source of entertainment as well as communication. So the WhatsApp looks great as well as communicating to us. And uh, you know, emails are something that we our eyes are drawn to now because we're so used to working with them and so yeah it's it's for me it is a very visual medium which is why I'm I am quite surprised when people do um engage with it as an audio book um I should listen to I should you know make some time to listen to audio books and that should be my belated new year's resolution to try and get into them because yeah. you know, people love them and you know I want to know what what, what it is they love I think that's a wonderful idea. I mean, I don't do that and I don't read digital advanced copies. Now, my brain is so old, I can't rewire it. And I can't remember anything that I, you know, that I listen to as opposed to, I, I have an eidetic memory. So, you know, I can I can see the page, I can go back to the page and all, and you can't do that if it's strictly audio or if it's a if it's a digital file, like on a Kindle or whatever it is. You know, and I know you can highlight it and do all this other stuff, but it's it's not the same. It's basically a scroll, you know, like a like the Alexandria Library, you know, was <laughs> actually full of books. It was full of scrolls. But we all, you know, younger readers do that. But there was a um a poll recently done, I don't remember who, but a pretty respected outfit that uh their conclusion was that Gen X readers um are going back to print. Because they spend all of their, you know, working lives now and much of their leisure life on a screen, thanks to their phones or computers, and so to read on one, if you want to relax, isn't it isn't a novelty anymore? And in fact, it feels like work. Yeah, I mean, I, I would have to agree. As as a Gen X, uh, Gen X and myself, I I have gone back to print, and I did go to an ebook for a while, thinking it would solve my book problem which you can see is is here and there's a lot of my book problem that you can't see around here um because I thought it would solve that and it it did but it just wasn't the same I like the physical book and I think that's why I write for the physical book um but yeah it's uh 
it's, it's interesting how the different generations consume books in different ways. Fascinating. It really is. So to go back to your style, and I'm now thinking about the Christmas book, and since it's been out in both countries, I don't worry so much about spoilers, because theoretically, if you're a fan, you've probably already read it since it came out in the fall. But what you're good at, one of many things you're good at, is putting something right in front of the reader, and then misdirecting us. And in, in your case, it was the beanstalk. You know, I mean, there were, and, and, and you, you were very good about keeping it front and center, but you didn't beat it to the point where the reader, except for me, maybe, the reader began to say, what's with this beanstalk? I mean, <laughs> always here. Um, and so you obviously love misdirection. I do. <laughs> I do it whenever I can. Um, and I love being misdirected. I mean, I just, it, it's wonderful when you're watching a film and you've watched it all the way through and you realize the twist happens and you realize you've been fooled all the way through and i just love that feeling and i i guess i want to recreate that in in my readers as well it is a it's an art and because i i write linearly i i write chronologically through the book a lot of that is reverse engineered afterwards and it's quite a skill to make it feel to to embed that misdirection into the the narrative so it's great to know that it works. It does work. Are you familiar with the term MacGuffin? Yeah, I am. I mean, that's basically what this is. You know, it's that thing that makes the plot work that is not visible um, mm -hmm. until it has to be. And there, there are a few. Robert Barnard. I don't know if you ever read Robert Bernard or Bernard. I called him Bernard. Brilliant crime writer who tragically died some years back, but he wrote a couple of perfectly brilliant MacGuffin books. John Denning wrote a book called Book to Die that had a, a MacGuffin that you only got, you know, in like the last page, essentially, of the book, when you realize that thing that was always there that you didn't see, it went click and, you know, everything, everything worked. So I, I liked your beanstalk. I mean, it was square in the MacGuffin tradition, I thought. <laughs> Thank um, you very much. Well, you're entirely welcome. And really, the appeal had sort of a very long MacGuffin you know, going on. So when did you run across that term? Are you a student of crime fiction? Because a lot of people have never heard of it. I've I heard of it in relation to screenwriting because I was a, a screenwriter for film and TV um, for a good 10, 15 years before writing novels. And it's it's used there as well in um, plotting. And um, yeah, that's where I first came across it. I suppose I hadn't really thought it, it was a factor in books, but yeah, of course it is. It's, uh, it's the plot point that nobody knows until until well, it's well to be fair play it has to be there you know mm -hmm. i mean you can't you can't i mean you know there there used the crime the cw no the detection club which is a you probably know a distinguished body um members by invitation only in great britain that started as a social club and i think still is actually a social club as opposed to the crime writers association which you can join if you're actually a writer or even an aspiring writer, or in my case, a bookseller, um, had a rule. I think it was Father Ronald Knox, you know, had this like 10 rules of fair play for crime fiction. Um, and one of the one of the really great things is if you can get away with violating one of them and still be a success. And I'm I'm thinking back to Charles Todd's first book and I'm sorry at my age I can't remember titles if Patrick were doing this Jacob pay attention I would now get a flash on the screen from the message and it would tell me what the name was but anyway it violated 
one of Father Knox's rules deliberately. And the rule was there can be no doppelgangers or, you know, no Chinamen and no doppelgangers to come yeah. in, you know, and confound the reader. And actually, oh, it's a test of wills, proving that you don't actually forget anything when you get old. It just takes the memory longer to recover. A test of wills, in fact, violated that principle. And and it was a brilliant, you know, it was really brilliant because it did that um, and did it successfully. So, you know, the fair play thing has been lost in the whole tradition since Gone Girl. Because everything, you know, is a twist, all the unreliable narrators, all the whatever it is. And I I'm kind of bottomed out on that, you know. I I really miss the the more fair play where you can actually like somebody in the book as opposed to nobody. Um, and so that's another question I had for you. When you're writing these things and there are unreliable narrators and twisty things going on, do you make it a point to make at least one character really likable? Um, the short answer is no, not really. I, I would say all of my characters, I I love all of them, um, even though they're all really flawed. And I, I kind of love their flaws as well. I mean, even my bad characters, they have good points to them. They have, or you can understand why they're bad or why they do the things they do, at least. I don't think any I've ever had a really good character or a really bad one. That's none that's 100% um, I don't either. think they necessarily have to be good or bad. There's a difference between being likable. I mean, there are a lot of likable rogues in the world, you know, who are not yeah. necessarily, no person is any one thing. I'm not sure I, uh, I would say likable. I think relatable is, is the key thing. Can okay. we relate to that character? Do we believe them? Can we imagine ourselves in their shoes doing what they're doing? Or have we observed that kind of character around us in our lives? Uh, that it's the relatable and the believable rather than I think likable is a, is a, a kind of mis, misleading thought about because yeah. I, I love loads of awful characters awful I love right. Scrooge he's a great character he's awful um he's but, awful no I totally I totally agree maybe what I mean is you know you, the reader cares really cares about the outcome mm -hmm. them. um maybe that's what I mean when I say likable because relatable yeah. You know, it was different, but um, oh dear, oh good, he's moving on. I was worried because if in fact the UPS or the FedEx guy has come, the dogs will try very hard oh, to right. eat their way through the door and make their escape here. <laughs> and it'll all go <laughs> and I think he moved on. Oh, right. Um, I mean, it's an interesting question, Janice. I mean, you know, I imagine as an author, writing bad guys may be more fun than writing good guys. Do you find that to be true? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Or at least write a good guy, but give them something really bad about them. Because that's what makes people interesting, isn't it? The terrible things that have happened to them, the awful things they've done by accident or for some kind of, you know, whatever misdirected reason. You know, the, the, the bad things and the awful things about us make us interesting and make us human. So that's, uh, yeah, that's the interesting thing. I don't think there is such a thing as a really good person in life either I think we're all flawed and we're all interesting and we've all got things about us that that make us stand out and that make us behave as we do I mean we as we we, we are all in the moment but we're all the person that we were 10-15 years ago from from childhood and we have that that person with us all the time so yeah it's I, I'm, I'm really interested in behavior and how um 
how what's happened to us in the past influences our behavior now and I think all of my characters in my books tend to have that behavioral um paper trail if you like behind them that informs how they behave within the novel well I think it's hard to get to my age for example without having regrets um without actually having perpetrated any criminal act at least I don't think I have um but you're right um it does the flaws are one of the things that make us interesting and certainly in this book both Amanda and Oliver are flawed but they also you know have actual acts that um you know make them that way it isn't you know just they were unkind to somebody well it has to go a little deeper than that um yeah, oh. I um, Amanda and Oliver. I know I had their dynamic down very early when I started mm. writing the book because I really wanted to do a male-female double act in this book. I'd done in the appeal, you know, it's a huge cast of characters. The Twyford Code was one character's journey, so I, I was interested in getting a double act at the at the core of this book. And um, Amanda and Oliver are that. They're very different. They have very different backgrounds, um, but they're both. They share. A similar drive they both want to succeed and they have a similar um, ambition about them it's just they come from very different places and that's where they clash but I must say while I was writing another double act comes through the book I didn't intend her to be a big character at all but Ellie who is Amanda's assistant and who transcribes all of her interviews putting her own comments in where she sees things that she wants to make a comment about um, Ellie Ellie built her own role I she was just going to be that her transcriber and yet Ellie was saying more and more as the book goes on and she was becoming a double act with Amanda so there was Amanda and Ellie and Amanda and Oliver on the other side two double acts and so I just went with it and Ellie was such a lovely character that I let her build her own role through the story is she the author of most of the sticky notes she might be you never know you have to read the book to find out. No, it's true. I know. <laughs> well, that is, you know, that, that's interesting. I've talked to many, many authors who are surprised when a character either grows or in some cases takes over a story or starts out as a minor character and then becomes the lead. And, you know, I mean, you're basically telling yourself the story as you go. So until it's finally done. I had a, a discussion the other day with the debut author here um, who was was upset that she didn't have a chance because her book was publishing very soon to suddenly pull it and you know revise it and she'd had some criticism from people who felt like she should have written it differently and I said to her you know it's your story and it, it's hard to run up against critics and readers who want to make it their story you know take your story and then want to you know, channel it years ago on the Crime Writers Association, well before you probably ever would have paid attention, there was a really epic battle between P.D. James and a rather brash and not nearly so successful male writer. And it, it turned really, really ugly, but basically it was about they felt that she should have written the book they wanted and not the book she actually wrote. She was so incensed and good for her. I liked Phyllis. She was a tough tough lady she resigned from the crime writers association over it and never went back she was so offended that her colleagues didn't speak up for her um against this but it was a real classic you know of of people assailing an author 
because they felt like it should have been a different story. But the bottom line is it was always the author's story, right? Well, exactly. And it's funny you should uh, mention that because The Mysterious Case of the Alperton Angels is the first book I wrote having already been a published author because I wrote The Appeal and the Twyford Code both before The Appeal came out. So when I was writing this book, I was reading all what people loved about The Appeal and the Twyford Code, two very different books. And I was very aware what my readers might expect my next book to be. And I knew this wasn't it. I knew it was a completely different style of format. It was very much a mix of the two, really. But it was it was very different, but much darker than the first two. And I, I wondered what would the readers think, people who've read the other books, what would their expectations be? But I think you have to let go of that. And I, hopefully now my readers are, are kind of aware that I do something different with every book. And even if you loved something about, about that other book, it probably won't happen in, in the next book after that. There's going to be something else in that book from me because it feels very much like a journey rather than writing the same book again which I actively try not to do I try to move on with each one and uh, yeah so this this one is quite different from the other two it is quite different but do you think that your readers expect you to have to use this particular narrative form do you think they'd be disappointed if you wrote you know a straight a straightforward piece of narration without um using various epistolary or or technical you know you know I hope I hope they wouldn't be I I would hope that if and when I I go for that third person narrative the the straightforward narrative I hope when I do it that everybody likes it um they probably would be expecting something different but I I am going to do it at some point I am running scared from it but they say do do something that scares you do something that you know that that gets you out of your comfort zone so at some point I am going to write a novel with a more conventional narrative and uh, now I've said it I have to do it at some point but it won't be my next novel or the one after that <laughs> well okay <laughs> the readers know that so one of the things I think is is wonderful about your books um it might be more of a surprise to American readers because we are not quite so prone to do this but it's very British to insult people by being freezingly polite instead of, you know, being really rude. Um, and I thought, especially in your Christmas book, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble remembering. What was the title? The Christmas Appeal. Thank you. The Christmas Appeal. Right. Because anyway, I thought that some of the email exchanges were just classic examples of, you know, how this absolutely freezing politeness could be so bitchy and you know, really rude. Um, I don't know that Americans can can do that as well as as you guys. Um, do you do you run into people like that? Have you tried to cope with people? I mean, I know you're not like that, but have you taken you know notes when you run into people who are like that? I, yeah, I think in in my life, I've certainly met lots of people like that. And yeah, when you're in a situation where there's lots of uh, lots at stake for everybody, there is in in the appeal, both the appeal books where they're putting a play on and everybody wants it to be good. But there are clashes over how that um, should be achieved. And in situations of a work situation where everybody wants everything to go to go well, but they disagree on on, on one route towards it. That's when you get this. Uh, it's not confrontation because we don't do that very well. It's a kind of as you say, a freezing politeness, 
that everyone kind of understands. It's not direct, but we and we all get it. Uh, I, I often wonder what uh, an American may think of some of those exchanges in the uh, in the Christmas appeal and the appeal because uh, yeah, they're not very direct, but uh, no. hopefully you get our, our humor and you understand it. They're really, you know, sticking <laughs> sticking in the knife and twisting it. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I do think it's an interesting question. I have spent so much of my life either reading British or actually being in England, you know, that I'm familiar with it. I, I, I told you about the bus, didn't I, my trip on the bus? Yes, you did. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was last time, yeah. Right, and, you know, the, the point... I, you know, the reason I didn't say anything is I was absolutely sure that the major doma, whatever he was, whatever that's called, at the Ritz would have indeed perhaps let, you know, this lovely little cockney guide in, but he would have been so freezingly polite. The man would have been miserable, hated every single moment of it. And, you know, it's a weapon that... um I don't know that that would work in this. You know, we're not used to that. I'm not entirely sure that that would have that same effect. But then, you know, it's so often said that, you know, Americans are all about race and the British are all about class. And, you know, without without maybe the class structure, maybe the freezing politeness wouldn't have nearly so much effect. I don't know. It happened to me once at Oxford when I attempted to, when I wanted to step into a garden and I was informed of, tones that were so frosty it almost burned my ears and it was only for fellows <laughs> you know, okay <laughs> it is quite funny i have to say it does make me laugh <laughs> right so um i think that the you know you obviously have a mind um i really i i think you're you know it's, do you draw upon your journalistic experience to come up with your your plot lines because they are really devious and often you know they almost fall in some cases into that um that sort of heist or caper school you know where they're not so much necessarily they're not necessarily murder mysteries although people die as they are more in that you know fraud or whatever you want to call it um do i draw my journalistic back i did certainly for this one um, I had to go back to my my journalism days. Do you know that what I get most from from those days generally is my being able to meet deadlines, which is quite handy now. I have more of them. That's a really good skill to not be to not be weighed down by the by a deadline ticking behind you while you're writing something, and to still be able to write to it to the standard that you need to write um, under that degree of pressure. That's been very useful over the years i mean i certainly for, for the characters of amanda and oliver i i knew those sorts of people when i was writing for magazines and i i met a few amandas people who want to get to the truth at, at every cost they don't care if people like them or not they'll ask the awkward question at the press launch they'll say they'll lie in order to get to the truth and because that's what amanda does a lot of the time um which which is a, a, which fascinates me, and I always admired those people because they got to the bottom of the story, whereas someone like me, who was a lot shyer, a lot quieter, a lot didn't want to upset people, um, I didn't get to the bottom of those stories. So, you know, who who was the successful journalist there? Um, so yeah, it fascinates me, and I've brought that kind of character to life in this book. So in order to tell the story, you still have to come up with, you know, what 
what the bottom line is. What is the truth? What is the story that your characters are trying to get to? Did any of those arise from your personal experience or do you just make all this up? Do you imagine what awful things people can do and then go from there? I yes, it, for this one, yeah, I did. I I made it up, but I I I love true crime. I'm a big true crime um, consumer. I'm very interested in cults and cult theory. So I had all of that at a bedrock of knowledge. I did look a few things up. Um, oh, it's quite useful. While I was writing this book, the whole Nexium cult was um, in the news. In the news, there were lots of documentaries made, films about that. That's very interesting to watch the most sort of recent um, high-profile cult. And that was that was useful because we saw his saw the leader of that cult on screen, which doesn't often happen. No. And that was, was interesting because I had to obviously create a, a cult leader myself. Um, so that was that was fabulous. Um, can't remember what your original question was. Well, I was I you know I think you are wonderful at at creating you know the underlying plot you know the bones of the plot, and then on top of that you lay the way your characters operate it and try to dig down to the truth of what what's really the story and say so those are two different things you know one of them is to is to actually have the story because otherwise the book won't work and then and that's where the MacGuffin comes in and all the rest and then you know create your characters and I guess the question because it arises in events in the store how much are you drawing from your own life or real life or how much are you just making shit up <laughs> <laughs> that's right the real life thing for this i i made it up um it's, it's not i haven't um ever fallen for a cult but after my research into cult theory into what leads people into cults i haven't avoided uh, being a cult member because i'm any cleverer than people who did it's just that i was lucky when i was vulnerable yeah. to being um seized by a predator I was lucky I didn't meet that predator at that time and that's the only reason because I'm sure I, I would have fallen for a cult at various points in my life and I think if we're aware of that aware that we may be vulnerable uh, that's useful knowledge useful information I hope actually that's something readers take away from this book that you know when you're vulnerable that's a, that's a real strength to know when you might be vulnerable to something and question if somebody wants you to belong to them because there are a lot of people who do well it's a question that is very much in front of all of us here in the united states and there are many people trying to figure out you know what it is that is making what it is that draws people to what is essentially a cult um you know it's 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 fascinating um and there have been very distinguished newspapers and journalists that keep trying to figure it out nobody has really been able to. Um, so, and it'll be an ongoing thing, an ongoing drama, at least for all this year. And that year, I've, I've reconceived, not reconceived, but I'm gonna emphasize, I'll say it right here, the mission of the poison pen, because there's, I read today, and I can't remember what, the Washington Post or Shelf Awareness or something, that bookstores are essentially activist and political. And, you know, and I, I realized that that's not, that's not how I want my bookstore to be. I want it to be where people can come for information and entertainment. And I like to highlight books that are not message books, but are in fact books that are entertaining, but at the same time teach you things. 
you know, because that's always been a draw for me in crime fiction is the really great stuff you can learn that you would probably never, you know, ever even think about or come across in, in real life. But if you read enough of it, you know, you wind up with this kind of grab bag in your head, you know, of wonderful facts. Steve Barry just wrote to me, we're going to launch his book on the 19th of February, and it's built upon real history, which is the General Yamashita's burying in the Philippines, um, lots of gold and treasure that the Japanese acquired in their World War II conquest, and he buried it there so that it would benefit the royal family. You know, that's a real thing, and some of it's been found. And then he goes off and he has a Swiss bank and other stuff going on. But the real point, which he wrote to me of writing the book, was that he went to learn and wants to explain to readers in a relatively painless way what cryptocurrency is all about and Bitcoins. And he does it so well that I, who never could figure out what a blockchain actually was, have now read you know, the Atlas Maneuver. And I get it. For the first time, I have never figured out what in the world the blockchain thing and crypto was about. And thanks to Steve, I get it. And see, that to me is almost like a perfect crime novel. You know, you get lots of entertainment, you, great things happen, but you come away learning actual history and something useful in real life. And I mean, wow, you know, that's the point. Yeah, it's, it's the escape into a world that's not yours. And you can experience that world through the book. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you have a real gift for doing something similar. So before we merge to see if there's anybody who has any questions, what are you working on now? And it's interesting to me that you had a chance to write the Twyford Code while you were, you know, while the appeal. So you you didn't have that awful pressure of, you know, the one year deadline because you actually had a chance to write your second book while the first book was wending its way along. But to do this one, you must have had more of a time pressure. I, there was slightly more. Yeah, that's right, because um, I wrote the Twyford Code during lockdown, and then I wrote this one straight after. So, yeah, the timing was um, was fairly tight with this. I mean, it takes me seven to eight months to write um, the first draft, and then it goes through, of course, the publishing process of structural edits and, and copy edits. Um, but at the moment, I'm working on, or I've just, just sending off the examiner, which is scheduled for launch in September of this year. And the I can give you a brief um, taster of what the examiner will be. It's set in a university, uh, a master's program. And there are six students and a tutor on this course. And the examiner has read their coursework and their final essays. And he thinks one of those students died on the course and all the others are covering it up. But he's not sure. So he wants us to read the coursework and the final essays and some of the communications on the internet that that happened during the course of that year to see if he's right and if he is what did happen and I that's the examiner Colin Dexter take it up to a whole yeah it's a very it's a, a cryptic campus novel it's, I love uh, that. Well, you know, there's a whole thing going on about dark academia but um I think cryptic campus sounds a lot more fun and you know that that's really giving morse kind of a poke isn't it <laughs> yeah i must i must say i love going back to university and and um writing from the point of view of characters who are doing a course which is so um wonderful i did an, an ma later in life myself in my mid-30s anyway and it was wonderful it, you know it changed my life to go back to education when you're older um 
and this was almost like doing it again, going back to this course now. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was amazing to write. What fun you got to, did you make up the university rather than landing it, you know, in one of your more distinguished. <laughs> I did make it up, but it's very um, thinly disguised as Royal Holloway, which is a, a beautiful university, part of the University of London. And it's the most wonderful building, uh, really Gothic, um, beautiful. Google Royal Holloway University of London. Uh, amazing. And I imagined that place to be where these students were, but it's not actually that university. You know, it's nothing, um, nothing that happened there at all. Wow. Well, I can't wait to read it. And we'll get to talk about it again in September, which is really exciting. Um, meantime, Jacob, since that's you behind the white screen, come forth and tell us if we have any questions for Janice to answer. Always takes a minute here. There you are. Genesee, yeah, we do have a few questions. Lovely. Uh, Renee asks, uh, how long did it take for you to write the book uh, compared to some of your other novels? This book, um, seven to eight months for the first draft. Then it takes, um, my structural edit would, was about six weeks after my editor had um, read that first draft and come back. Uh, then there's a line edit that takes two or three weeks. So gradually, if you add all that together, I'm no good at maths. It's a kind of, I mean, I think of it as about a year for each book. Yeah. And it's been about roughly the same for all of them, I have to say, apart from The Appeal. The Appeal first draft took me a year, and that, so that's longer. So I'm getting quicker. But I don't think I would write a book of, of this complexity in anything less than seven months, I don't think. It was The Appeal was your first published novel, but had you actually written a novel before then that didn't get published? I've never asked you that. Only when I was about 19 and I wrote the angst-ridden teenage novel, um, which I'm glad, I'm so glad no, no one saw that. I really am. And that it was in the age before computers, so it's it's completely gone. Uh, no one can ever have that, that awful thing. No, I, I come from screenwriting, so I had lots of... Um, unproduced screenplays and TV series. So that's where I kind of learned my storytelling craft and then adapted it for novel writing. But yeah, that first draft, the first novel I wrote took a, a year to write. And then I, ha I had a lot more work to do on that. The appeal was a lot longer because I, I was inexperienced and didn't know what I was doing. But hopefully I'm, I'm getting quicker and better, I hope. Thank you, Renee, for that question. Uh, this one's also from Renee. Um... Do you have a favorite film and do you um, take inspiration from film? Uh, oh, I, yeah, I absolutely do take inspiration from film because I, I watched so much of it while I was a screenwriter. That was my, um, my go-to uh, media really was film. Favorite film, I've got a couple. I've got, uh, this is Spinal Tap, uh, Quadrophenia, um, Festen, which is a Danish um, film. And what else would I say be one? And I, I like Fight Club. You know, I think everyone could see why I like Fight Club by reading my novels. Um, but yeah, so yeah, those, uh, Feston is, a, is an amazing film, if anyone has ever seen that. Uh, but yeah, film, I, I love. The film is a great medium because it's very, um, it's commercial and it's popular, but it's also artistic and it, it has that realm too. Um, yeah, no, I, I fell in love with film when I was a screenwriter. Uh, Kim asks, 
Do you do a lot of people watching for your writing material? Where do you get your inspiration for your characters? Oh, I do loads of people watching and people listening as well. I'm a really big eavesdropper. I um I take the bus a lot and I listen to people people's conversations, people talking. Uh, and it's amazing when, when you're traveling um, on the train, when there's lots of school kids talking the way they talk. I mean, I, I'm older. So I don't, um, I'm not in touch with young people. But if you listen to them, you can, you can hear what they're, what's important to them and what they're, how they talk to each other is wonderful. Um, and old people as well, listening to them talk to each other. So yes, I'm a big eavesdropper and a people watcher. Thank you, Kim. Mm -hmm. Did you learn anything uh, when you were writing this book? I'm sure you did, but was there anything oh. that stood out to you? Yes, I, I, I kind of knew a lot about cults, but I'd never looked into the background of. I mean, I could tell you the names of cults, and I could tell you, you know, how many people died, what what the basic story was. I couldn't have told you how or why people get into that lifestyle, or indeed how or why they start cults. But I did a lot of research into that. Um, for this. So yeah, I, I feel more knowledgeable about that now than I was before. And in fact, in the book, uh, we get Amanda's list of books that she buys to to get into to, to learn about the Alberton Angels and about cults. And I've put a uh, half of it is actually the books I read that I found very interesting and useful. So that's been worked into the book. Uh, so if you buy the book, you can see the the books that I read to educate myself on um, cult theory. Okay, great. That's it. Wonderful. I'm going to ask you, do you find what you learned to be really unnerving? Um, in a way, it was unnerving because I had I was guilty before of saying people who follow those cults are, you know, there must be something wrong with them. They must be stupid. Um, there must be, you know, what, how, why did she do that? Why did he do that? Uh, no, I would never say that now. That's a completely wrong thought um, for that particular criminal situation, um, the coercive control uh, thing. So, I, yeah, I, uh, that, that, is, that is the key thing for me, the key change for me. Well, this is a wonderful book. It is so much fun to read. It, um, it's entertaining and challenging. Those two things that I've already mentioned, I think, are so wonderful. Um, so if you haven't yet read it, um, I want to recommend it just as out the mysterious case of the Alberton Angels. And we can look forward now to the examiner. If by some weird chance you missed the appeal or the Twyford Code, you can now go back because they're they're all different. So you don't, you know, you can read this one and then you can go back and read the appeal or the Twyford Code. I do think that the Christmas appeal, probably you should, hopefully you have read the appeal first. I do think that they, they're more or less, they're kind of a pair or bookends, but, um, and, and really it also will make you think a lot about how we communicate the different ways that Janice illustrates about how we, you know, communicate and our reliance on tech and our reliance on more old fashioned kinds of things. So lots to gain from reading Janice's books. So thank you, Janice, for another fabulous conversation. I so much look forward to seeing you every day. Oh, thank you, Barbara. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on again. I look forward to speaking to you next time. Well, thank we you. will indeed. So bye, everybody. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. 
please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.